0: you're listening to an mpavilion podcast conversations about design and the world we live in for more visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts Good morning, everybody. Wominjika, which simply means welcome. My name is Dave Wondon, and I'm an elder of the Wurundjeri Tribe Land Council, on whose land we are gathered today. It is known as the land of our ancestors, but that's actually wrong, because it's still our land today, and it will be the land of my children, and Uncle Andrew's children, but it'll be the land of all your children as well, that we must learn to live together to share and respect the land of my ancestors. And we're here today to tell you a little story about how our ancestors did it and how we can do it into the future. I don't speak much language. You just heard Waminjika. I only add two more words to it and that is Waminjika Wurundjeri Biak. Welcome to Wurundjeri country. I pay my respects to my ancestors, and my elders, both past, present and emerging for the knowledge that they have been able to pass on to me, that I can pass on to my children, my grandchildren, and now my one great grandchild. I pay my respects to all other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples that may be with us here today, to their ancestors and elders, both past, present and emerging, and again, for the same reason, that I've had the opportunity to meet many mobs, especially up and down the east coast of Australia, and learn from them, but also help teach them what I know as well and in that way we are starting to close the gaps in our knowledge and becoming a force that can actually help the people who live on our country today not just our communities to show the respect for country the way that we have been taught and we were taught this and this is where I pay my respects to our creator spirit which is represented by the wedge-tailed eagle and we call him Bunjil Bunjil is our father, if you like. And he gave us the laws of the land of which we are responsible for today. For those of you who don't know that, it's a rough outline of the area of our ancestors. Our land starts at the mouth of the Werribee River, travels upstream to the headwaters of the Werribee River, which brings us to the Great Dividing Range, travels across the Great Dividing Range to Mount Baw and then makes its way back down south back into Port Phillip Bay through the, through the Dandenong Ranges. That was an area which today we are considered to be traditional owners of, in government speak. We never owned it, we are custodians. We had responsibilities to bundle our creator spirit. He said, I will give you this land, but it is not for you. It is for you to take care of. And that includes the waters that we'll be talking about today. But it includes the trees, it includes the birds, it includes the sky. It includes the animals, the reptiles, the marsupials. It includes all the insects. It includes the soil. And it includes all the fish that belong in those waters. We are custodians of all of that. Our land was not given to us so we could deplete its resources. And when we'd finished with it, we would move away and go and invade somebody else. We were taught to manage it sustainably, not only for our generation, but for thousands of generations to come, as we've been here for many hundreds of generations prior to this day. This is what we are trying to teach all the people who live on our traditional lands. And it's not a hard thing to do. We had many laws that were given to us by Bunjil, just as you all have laws today. But my story is that Bunjil said, I will give you one law. And if you cannot remember this, there is no point learning any other laws. And the first law is that you must respect your mother. Not only your physical mother that you are born from, who of course is the first person you come into contact with when you come into the world, who then nurtures you and protects you when you are young and defenceless, And as you grow a little bit older, you start to move out into your community. But she's still caring for you, but also your father, your uncles, your aunties, the rest of your family. But whenever you're in trouble, the first person, think about it when you were a child, the first person you run to is always go back to mum. Because you remember that whenever you're in trouble, she looked after you. You also remember if you were bad, she punished you. And that's a really important lesson to learn. But of course as we grow older and move up into our communities and take our own responsibilities within the community to the land, to all those creatures and plants and animals that I spoke about, our physical mother gets older. And we find that she can't do the things that she was done, that, that she used to do when she was young. And so we return that favour and we care for her in our old age. Now that's not exclusive to Aboriginal people, we all do that. We all care for our parents and our grandparents, and that's a good thing. But it's a lesson that we have learnt that if you can do that, you can remember to do that, to think about not only your physical mother, but the spirit of your mother, and the spirit of our mother is the land on which we are gathered today. Because if you think about the land and what it has done for us, and it still does for all of us today... She has nurtured us. She's provided us with all our resources, with our medicines, our foods, our fibres, our tools, our shelter. She's giving us all these things and she will keep on giving. But if we think about our physical mother getting older, think about the spirit of our mother, Nam, the land. She's also getting older and she's getting tired because we've forgotten that we owe her and we need to care for her as she cared for our ancestors. We need to care for her so that she can care for our future children that are not yet born. This is the philosophy that I like to teach everybody in all these presentations, that when you walk away from here, it's not about the rules and regulations that you might hear about what we're doing today, but it's your moral. For us, it's our cultural responsibility that we must care for country first. Because if we have healthy country, We have healthy people. And the only way we can do that is we must all walk country together. We must all heal country together. And as we heal country together, you will find that as humans, we are healing ourselves and each other in our respective communities. Womidjika, Wurundjeri, Biak, Welcome to Wurundjeri Country, and thank you.
1: Thanks Uncle Dave, um, you know I'm in awe of how you continue to inspire us and teach us and share with us your knowledge um, and in that, and I know I really appreciate that you always kind of really think particularly about the context and the space and the place we're in for the welcomes that you do. Um, I couldn't help but um, have my mind go back and forth while you were talking that I have my mother in the audience today, so um which is pretty lovely. So you know we're we're here and I think there will be a lot of emotions probably resonating today as we talk. So thank you for that beautiful welcome. Um hello everyone. <laughs> Thanks, Uncle Andrew. Um so I'd just like to start off by letting everyone introduce themselves and perhaps their context to be sitting on the panel today. Um, Uncle Dave, you've given a beautiful welcome. Do you want to say anything else to add to that?
0: Yeah, so what is my context of being here today? Well, I'm a member of the Bear Run Council, um, along with some people in the audience, and Alex, Uncle Andrew. And the Bear Run Council has a responsibility uh, to be the voice of the river. And that's why there are three Aboriginal people on there because we've been the voice of the river for thousands and thousands of years. And we believe that we can teach people who have responsibility for the river today how to look at it in a different way. And to encourage that, they need to listen to us and take our values and apply it to the values that they may be working under. And hopefully we can cause a shift in the way that we view the river And probably we're going to talk about it a lot longer. Um, I got into the role because I chose as an elder to become a land manager. So showing our young people how to care for the land. And that, of course, naturally advances into water. Um, And I've had a great time teaching my community how to care for the land the way that I know what my ancestors passed on to me. But as I started doing that, I realised there are other people out there caring for the land. but just doing it because a book told them to. And so I thought it was my job to educate those other people who are working in the same field that there is not just one way to do things. It was about sharing what I knew to see how it would apply to them. So causing this subtle shift in the way that we view the landscape. And uh, I was appointed by one of my elders to come and work for the Birirung Council. And he said, oh, look, it's not that much work at the moment. It's, you know, it's one day a month. And when I got really involved in it, I've been going through my calendar over the last year because we, have to, we do need to educate a lot of people. It is about five... Well, it's five days a month minimum, but I'm enjoying every minute of it because I can see changes that are happening. So that's my role today, a lot, among the many other things that I do. Yeah, thank you.
2: Good morning. Uh, well, I'm the newest member of the uh, Bureau and Council... So I've only been on for a few months, uh, but I uh, replaced the seat vacated by my sister. My sister Margaret passed away last year, and she was uh, one of the inaugural members of the Burung Council. 217, uh, 217, 218. 217. Yeah. So um, family members sort of encouraged me to do that. My plate was already a little bit full. Uh, how much more can I add to the plate before I can't consume any more? Um, So I'm actually uh, on the First People's Assembly of Victoria, representing our traditional owner group as a reserve seat holder uh, in the aspirations of treaty. What happens to that river there is going to be in our treaty aspirations. So it was an easy sort of fit for me to kind of go, OK, I can sort of be a part of that, because what's happening to the river needs to be something we can hold firm to in future developments that... um, our organisation, our community uh, in, you know, endeavours to do. Um, but, you know, we've, uh, I've been with the Wurundjeri Corporation for quite some time now too. Uh, actually, the Deputy Chair of our uh, board and um, also deal a fair bit with our treaty aspirations. Um, so uh, not exactly as much of a land manager as uh, Uncle Dave here, but uh, I've walked a lot of country as well. And that aspirational stuff through what our mothers have taught us, um, every time we came to Melbourne, you know, my mum would always have this association with the river. We'd go to Hillsville or we'd go to other parts of the, uh, the Beorong. And uh, she always had a, an affinity and a connection to that, as well as my grandmother and my uncle. So uh, it, was, it was a natural thing for me to feel that too. And that comes down to how, it's, how well it is, how well we treat it how well it's treated so that it's going to continue to be healthy into the future. Because without that, a lot of people, you know, over the decades have always called it an upside down river. But you get down to the bottom, it's actually clear. Yeah. <laughs> so we can make good out of something that might not look so good. With everybody's support about that, the river will get healthier. It's not that it's in huge trouble, but if we don't do something about it like now with the climate change, then things are going to get worse. So it's about trying to arrest that change and and improve. So with everybody's help and respect about that, the river will grow and continue to give us because it's given us for thousands and thousands of years. So, um, yeah, that's me.
3: Thank you. Um, And thank you both. Thank you for the welcome, Uncle Dave. And nice nice to meet you for the first time. Um, my name's Sarah Lynn Rees. I'm a Palawa woman descending from the Chuaway people of North East Tasmania. Um, I live and work across Wurundjeri, Bunrong Wurrung, country, um, pay my respects to those countries. Um, I work in architecture at Jackson Clements Burrows and also a lecturer at Monash University and sit on various boards, including co-chair of the First Nations Advisory Working Group for the Australian Institute of Architects. Um, the context of me being here, of course, is that we uh, run a studio um, in support of the Biruang Council, um, and the aspirations around the river being one um, integrated living entity. And so, yes, that's why I'm here today. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. And
4: Jock. Thank you, Alex. Um, and thank you, Uncle Dave, for a wonderful welcome, um, which I shouldn't say we're getting used to, but it's just amazing that you can continually do it and con- it's continually enthralling. So thank you very much. And thank you, Uncle Andrew. Lovely to meet you. And it's great to share the stage. Thanks, Sarah, as always. Thank you. Thank um, you. And look, I would offer my acknowledgement in response to the welcome um, and acknowledge that we are here today on the lands, the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people. Um, I've come down this morning from where I live on the unceded lands of the Wadawurrung people and it's just as beautiful a morning up there and um, lovely to see the Managums in flower and it's that particular point of the season, um, you know, sort of, early autumn getting a bit chillier and, you know, we've had some conversations about the kind of landscape that we're in right now and what that means and what we can kind of do in terms of changing that perhaps. So my uh, my role at RMIT University is as a program manager in the Bachelor of Landscape Architectural Design and I'm also a landscape architect and I'm very interested in our relationship as built environment professionals between landscape and country and our constant importing of ideas of landscape into a pre-existing conceptual arrangement which is far stronger and far more applicable to the place that we're in now. And I think... um, my role here, similarly with, uh, with Sarah, is as a studio leader, so a design studio leader from 2021, looking at the Birrarung and thinking about some of the implications of that and really, generally, our responsibility and obligations as built, design, uh, you know, kind of built environment design professionals and our obligations to listen, to hear what our elders are saying, to hear what country is saying. And I'm really um, humbled to have the opportunity, so thank you.
1: Thanks, Jock. Um, and finally, I'll introduce myself. Alexandra Lee, Birrarung Council member and landscape architect, and feeling very honoured to have coordinated this panel to talk today. So, thank you all for your time. Um, in my professional role, I'm a principal landscape architect at a company called Spire, uh, where I specialise in working with urban water management um, and in the first instance, that was kind of really a bit of a technical stream that I came into. Um, and when I realised I wanted to learn more from traditional owners, found a path to coming on the Birrarung Council. And that, what that also made me realise is that I felt like I'd come full circle. Um, I, my childhood was spent growing up on the banks of the Avon River and that's such an integral part of my life and I have really realised how much rivers have been always central to my life and my passion and it's really was a, was a bit of an epiphany for me to realise the circle that I'd come in my professional career as well. Um, I just want to take the opportunity just to introduce a couple of people off the stage before we begin. We have Chris Chesterfield, the Chair of the Biran Council, sitting in the middle of the room here. Chris, do you want to waggle your hand up in the air? We also have Dr Erin O'Donnell, who sits on the council with us. Over the back somewhere, I saw him a second ago, Jackson Chatfield, who is our executive officer, um, leaning against the orange wall back there. Um, and we also have Warwick Leeson with us today, who's also a Birang council member. So um, it will be great to have them to also contribute to the discussion at the end, if we have time. So um, I'd like to start by giving a bit of context to the council and the work that we're doing. Um, we might have a bit of overlap here of some of the words that Uncle Dave has already said today, but that just means we're all singing from the same hymn book, so that's pretty good. <laughs> um, as an independent voice of the Yarra, the Biran Council champions the interests of... The river as a single and li- one living and integrated natural entity guided by the voice and knowledge of traditional owners of the custodians of the river and its lands. The Wurundjeri Woiwurrung are the people of the river and their songs have been carried by the water from the mountains to the sea for tens of thousands of years. We also recognise the Bunurong have responsibilities where the river meets the sea. The Birung Council is appointed by the Water Minister through state government under the Yarra River Protection Act. We act as the voice of the river, and we provide an advisory function to State Government and the Water Minister, Harriet Shing. One of our key roles under the legislation is providing an annual report to be tabled in Parliament reporting on the implementation of the Yarra strategic plan and its progress. Some of you may be aware that we've recently had our first report tabled in Parliament last month, which we were pretty proud to have achieved that milestone. In our role as the voice of the river, we also undercate undertake advocacy to support the Birrung as a single living entity. And there's a few ways that we've been doing this, which I'll get to as we go through our conversation. A key component of our advocacy has been exploring the concept of the Great Birrung Parkland. This term, the Great Birrung Parkland, is a way of describing the river and its lands from source to sea. As a council, we're clear that our role is to advocate for the entirety of the Birrung, which is not only the river itself, but the lands of the Birrung, and how we care for them. The Birrung is more than just water. It's the layers in the landscape that the river has formed. The soils, the trees, the plants and the animals. It's the stories and layers of history that live within this landscape. And it's the new stories and layers that will unfold as we flow like the river through time. The Great Birrung Parkland consists of all land adjacent the river. This includes bushland parks, agricultural land, industrial land, private property, public roads and public open space. Irrespective of our current land use, all adjacent land contributes to the river and to the parkland. The contributing ecological value of the land may be inconsistent at present, however, the future of our river is to work towards a net game for the river, prioritising a regeneration in its adjacent lands. Under the YSP, there's a series of strong commitments that are to be delivered over the next 10 years to contribute to the shared care and management of our river. Through our advocacy for the river as the Birrarung Council, we want to set a more ambitious agenda for the river and its land, by developing our expectations on our responsibilities for the river. We believe this is a shared responsibility, as Uncle Dave has said this morning. Um, And this all comes down, this comes down to all land managers and owners of every size and scale, and the entire community who live and work and play within the lands belonging to the river. So I'd like to continue the conversation by throwing a few questions to the panel. Um, Uncle Andrew, you mentioned earlier we've had the privilege of having your sister, Annie Marg, on the inaugural council with us um, and we benefit often from her strong words and her capacity to be really direct and provide us with some total clarity on what we should be doing and what we should be advocating for. She made a really strong statement um, in one of our earlier workshops that the river needs its land. Um, and that's become a legacy, which has evolved to our advocacy work with, for the great Burrung Parkland. And we had her speak at Deakin Edge um, when we had our studio sessions um, in 2021, which we'll talk about a bit more later. Um, but do you want to take this opportunity to talk a little bit more about Annie Marg and her contribution to the council?
2: Yeah, well, uh, Marg, uh, well, being my older sister, she was always really clear and, and concise and direct with me, too. <laughs> so, uh, you yeah, know, if I wasn't kind of doing the right thing, I sort of soon found out about it. Uh, she'd either not talk to me or you be know, what are you talking about for? Oh, yeah, you did this. Oh, bugger. You know, I didn't do it like that. How did we should have done that? Anyway, uh, we had a good. Uh, we had a good uh, relationship and, you know, it was born out of respect and Marg always had this, um, like a steely glare, but she always had this really crisp way of saying stuff um, and I think um, as you, as you sort of grow older, you kind of see that and you kind of, you don't get so surprised, but you kind of understand it where you should have uh, it should have done better. But Marg developed probably the last 10 years, she developed this sort of helicopter view of everything. She was in the helicopter, obviously. And um, whether it was uh, Warundry Corporation or Dandenong Coop or Burung Council uh, or other things that she was involved with, uh, she developed this helicopter view. And uh, some of the things that she came out with was like, when, how did you think of that? Like, where did that come from? I don't know, I just thought of it. <laughs> it's like, but you've got to do a lot of reading. You've got to do a lot of reading. And you've got to do a lot of reading. And you've got to have lots of conversations with lots of different people to have that clarity to respond to stuff. And uh, Mark did do a lot of reading. She did have lots of conversations with people. And... It was remarkable at some board meetings, she'd come out of left field with some clear way of actually getting a program off the ground, which had some difficulty, and it always came back to what Uncle Dave was talking about, and that goes back to the grassroots people and deal with them and communicate with them about what it is they actually want to do. So they can design something that's actually for them, so they'll actually participate in it. So this is what we're engaging you to do, is to help participate in the betterment of the river and therefore betterment of us. Yeah, not just me, but all of us. So it's a shared commitment, absolutely. So Marg's... Um, um, one of Marg's uh, dying wishes was to be buried at Corander Cemetery. And there'd only been two other burials there since... Um, 1924. Mm, since 1924, yeah. Um, I think one was 1988 and the other one was 93. Mm. And one was my auntie, my mum's sister. And the other one was my cousin, my auntie's grandson. And then the third one was Mark. So it's family dynasty stuff. Uh, but she wanted to be there so she could actually overlook the river. Because from the Corander Cemetery, you can actually have a direct view of the, of the Birrung. So that always said something to her. Whereas our mother, grandmother, father, all up at Hillsville Cemetery... Um, she wanted, She always had this sort of more cultural aspect to herself. And, um, yeah, we, we made that happen. You know, it was was a little bit difficult, but there was a lot of streamlining to the, the process as well. So uh, in the end, we got it there, and she got buried there, and everything's happy. Um, she enjoyed being on the council because she wanted to make... Her contribution to the betterment of the river because it's all its different stages as it flows from headwater to mouth is got differences. They flow differently, some are fast and quick, some are slow, some are sludgy, some are dropping over the edge of like Dites Falls, Um, and uh, some are really silty, silted, so it clouds up. Um, How do we deal with all that? because there's been lots of sediment that's been put in there. It wasn't natural, it's been uh, man-made, uh, it's been leaching of, inf- uh, you know, um, what's that stuff they put in the ground to make it grow, stuff grow better? Fertiliser, lots of fertiliser have gone in there. And you can actually see the difference at the mouth, the different stages of the year. You know, there's a difference when some of that stuff is actually inputted. Large rainfalls. So the river's got its own personality in lots of ways. Um, and people associate it differently with the various flows. So I think Marg was uh, wanting to capture that and and uh, preserve that for our people into perpetuity, but also to share that with everybody. Yeah. So that's about
1: it. Thanks Uncle Andrew. Thank um, Aunty Marg has certainly left a really strong legacy for all of us on the Birrung Council and so it's great to be able to demonstrate that we're all working together and building our knowledge and we're kind of learning from the elders and that's feeding in and carrying our work forward, um, which is, is a real privilege. Um, we also have another amazing female elder um, on the Birrung Council, Aunty Dye Kerr, who hopefully most of you know her um, and she's an incredible presence on the council as well. Unfortunately Aunty Dye can't be with us here today um, but I really thought it's important to bring her words into the discussion here um, because you know she has some great clarity to offer us as well. Um, A few years back, she gave an interview on 3CR radio um, talking about her role on the Birrung Council and what the Birrung means to her, Um, and she was asked a question about what does the Birrung mean to Wurundjeri, and she responded with her personal perspective, Um, so I'd like to quote her directly here to bring her words into this conversation. The Birrung, which is the river of mists, it's our life our whole life. To me personally, our country is our mother. So the veins of her are the waterways. So that's a pretty beautiful way of um, understanding um, what the river and its country means to all of us. And Uncle Dave, you also talked about um, the the spirit of our mother earlier today. So that's a kind of really, that's a nice overlap. in this interview, um, Ani Dai. Sorry, I'm bad with my mic, I realise. Um, in this interview, Ani Dai also talked about cultural obligations for the river. Uncle Dave and Uncle Andrew, are you able to maybe offer an explanation of what those cultural obligations mean to you and perhaps also how this is a shared responsibility?
0: Uh, I said that in a welcome. A cultural obligation, a cultural responsibility to Bunjil. I just want to go back to something that you said, Uncle Andrew, about Aunty Marg viewing her role on the Birrung as if she's viewing it from a helicopter. Well that goes back to, because that puts it in a modern context, but I've got to say quite often as cultural responsibility and obligations, when I'm doing all of that reading that Aunty Marg encourages to do, and whether I like what I read or what I don't, I will take that and I'll put myself in Bunjil's place, if you like, in that helicopter, and I will look at those lands, and I will look at those waters, as I imagine Bunjil looking. One of the reasons I work so well with landscape architects, and I've done a few programs, outdoor places, and I've been asked to design something and draw it up, and I don't draw, it comes to my mind. Then it's on the ground, and I tell a story about it, and they say, how did you picture that? And I said, oh, I didn't. Bunzel told me. This is how he re- views the land. That's our cultural obligation, our connection to country, to be able to think not in, just in the modern context, but to look how other creatures, aside from humans, view the land. That's our connection to country and to our totemic system. And it's a ve- we haven't got time to talk about it today, but it is a very, very complicated system of management, responsibility, control and... I hate using the word control because we didn't, the land controlled us. The water controls us. Um, it's changing the thought of the river that we don't own the river. We belong to the river. We don't own the land. We belong to the land. But the rivers belong to their lands as well. So the combination of, of Aunty Dye and Aunty Marg, and those very powerful words of Aunty Marg really woke up my mind when she said the river needs its lands rather than just we're talking about the voice of the river. And since that statement, rather than just going looking at the water, I look at the water and watch it move across the land and listen for the stories that it's gonna tell me. And that's come from the words of our aunties, or my aunties, I should say. Um, And I'm seeing it in a whole new light as a human but when I'm looking at it, watching it move backwards and forwards, especially during the floods, when everyone looked at it as being a disaster and people's lives or, uh, or properties were under threat, it's when I really understood why the river needs its lands. And that is, the river needs to come and investigate. And it's doing that to making sure that we are taking our custodial obligations properly. It wouldn't flood in the short, sharp way that it does now previous to colonisation. It moved gently backwards and forwards across the land, taking scientific data, if you like, to put it in a modern context and taking it back to its creator, to the spirit of our mother and saying, this land's a little bit damaged and it would deposit some of that silt because some of it is actually good for the land and it would deposit that... Because everyone knows that after the river recedes, everything grows so well because it shifted all the nutrients around. Now, how does it do that if it's not a living entity? These are the things that you start, when you start to unpick our culture, you understand that it's not just a river that you can swim and play in, and you can wash your clothes, and you can drink water out of it, although no one drinks out of the Yarra today, and you wouldn't dare. Most people wouldn't swim in it either. But it's still doing its job. She is still trying to do her job to inspect the land. And if we're not looking after it properly, it leaves it unusable for us, hoping that we'll leave it alone, leave its lands alone until they can start to heal themselves or we can learn how to heal it. And these are the things, that's an extension of what I think Arnie, what I've learned from Arnie Dye and Arnie Marg, that we need to give the river its space to do the job that's been doing for thousands and thousands of years and science hasn't yet caught up to that function of the river. It will continue to do it. It will continue to replenish the land. But if we don't look after it, it will damage the land, not for the plants and the animals that exist there. It will make the land unusable for us as humans. I've always said that uh, if we left nature alone, which is what we're asking you to do as Aboriginal people, sometimes you've got to leave the land alone. People will say nature will take care of itself and the best way it will take care of itself, the first thing it would get rid of is actually us, humans. Because every other plant and creature that belongs there knows its responsibility. We just can't hear them. Well, sorry, I should say most people can't hear them. Aboriginal people have been listening and collecting data from the river, from the lands and from the soil. We are the first scientists of this country we've been collecting it and holding in our collective memory we wrote it down believe it or not but you can't read it what's what it's what we call reading country we don't need a university to store that knowledge because the university is right there on the lands next to the water it's right there in the water and we can teach the world as we go forward how to read that and they'll realise that our science is just as powerful now as what it was then and it is just as equal in value to the science that we use today to control the river rather than belonging to the river.
1: That's a lot to digest. Thank you, Uncle Dave.
2: It's hard to upstage that one. I agree. <laughs> uh, Yeah, no. Looking, looking at, looking at the environment. Look, sorry, yeah, the nut there. Looking at the environment as, uh, as uh, from an education perspective. Learning to read the environment, I kind of get that. I fish a lot. I'm a fisherman, so I, I freshwater fish. I fly fish. I do all sorts of fishing, especially in the rivers. You've got to be able to read the river. I understand that, because where the fish usually are is somewhere difficult to get to. <laughs> so you've got to be able to get into a position so you can actually get, the, get to them. But it's travelling the banks of the river and crossing it that you actually feel how that is. There's many times, most of the time, I go fishing, I don't catch, you know. it's, uh, it's Occasionally I catch. And that makes it all more special. Because when you're not catching, you're standing there just listening to the birds and the, looking at the sky and listening to the wind... You actually feel part of all that, you know? So just standing there, probably fish has just gone past me, but I didn't notice it. <laughs> it actually, has been many times I've actually fished. The, the fish has gone past me chasing the lure. It's like, yeah, I missed that one. So I'll throw up again. But it's all about that recognition of where you are in the environment, eh? So, you know, this is about giving you some information that helps you to uh, understand that and participate with that and share that with us. You know? That's about it.
1: Thanks, Uncle Andrew. Just slightly shift topics slightly a little bit. Um... <laughs> always inspiring, Uncle Dave. Regardless of if you shift, to- shift topic. <laughs> um... The Biruang Council has invested in several pieces of independent work over the past couple of years that all tie tie into fulfilling our vision that I shared earlier and also our role in caring for the river and its lands as a single living entity. One piece has been our walking together statement which outlines how we want to work together in our role as a council and the third has been our ideas paper on the Great Beerung Parkland. I've just skipped a number there in case anyone didn't pick up. Um, Out of the three pieces of work that we've prepared, the first was our net gain report. This work was done as net gain is a key term in the legislation in the Yarrava Protection Act that's not well defined. In current practice, we typically apply this term when balancing a loss of remnant vegetation in regards to offsets. The landscape architects in the audience might understand a bit about that. Um, But what we want to establish is a contemporary understanding of the term that is actually around baseline gains and improvements, not just balancing the status quo. We also want this model to address the social and cultural goals as well as physical environmental goals and help us to think about, you know, what makes the birang healthy. This net gain work helps us define how to work to repair some of the damage that has been done to the river. Sarah, you've got an amazing body of work um, through what you do and the many hats that you wear. Um, And we'll talk about the Design Week studios in a moment. Um, But as part of your own work, informing and the knowledge that you brought to those studios, you presented at the Design Week sessions um, and you shared a really powerful diagram that really resonated with me and you and I I have spoken about this diagram since and I've used it in presentations at my work to help our um, team understand, you know, where we're at with country Um, and at the centre of this diagram that you've prepared are the words country, culture and community. I'd like to ask you to explain to the audience um, what that diagram's about.
3: Absolutely. Thank you. Um, effectively, the diagram uh, became, I guess, my and our, as in JCBY diagram, why it's important and a way to communicate that to our team internally, but also to our clients. And effectively, the story of the diagram is that Uh, architecture and planning are complicit in the colonisation of country so it's not just the colonisation of people people are a part of country but the destruction of the lands the habitats the homes and the impacts to the river so our obligation as people who are in an industry in landscape architecture planning and architecture is that every project we do fundamentally reshapes country, therefore we have a responsibility to country in that context. And every project that occurs on this continent uh, is built on someone's country, within someone's country, of someone's country. Uh, Whether or not that's actually interlinked to the countries that it's on. But effectively the diagram goes, every project is built within country, therefore every project has a responsibility to country. And architectures of the past have uh, effectively sat in the category of this spectrum of destroy, destroy country. But what we need to do is at the very least start at this idea of maintain. I think it should be illegal to remove remnant vegetation, I think. (laughs) Um, So destroy, maintain, repair or celebrate. That's effectively the spectrum that we're working on in the context of the built environment. And Destroy means continue the colonisation of. Maintain means the current status, whether that's positive or negative. Um, Repair means steps towards improving the health and wellbeing of country. Um, And celebrate means that we've actually taken all of those steps that we can can celebrate um, story within place because place and country is healthy but all of those effectively will impact country, culture and community. And it's our responsibility, regardless of whether or not we can engage with traditional custodians on projects, because we can't engage on all of them, to fundamentally improve the health and wellbeing of country with every project that we do. So I guess that's effectively the longer story of the diagram. But if I could take one other moment to say, I guess, explain another diagram that we have in terms of the framework for how we do that and what's missing for most briefs that come across our desk is that the values rights and laws of country are not included in the brief they don't inform the brief and if you have the values rights and laws of country at the top and then you marry that with the purpose of the project then you can establish a series of objectives and outcomes that will deliver on the purpose of the project but also improve the health and well-being of country and so when we can't engage with traditional custodians because that's not possible or it's not within the remit or it's, it, it just doesn't happen. We always put the health and wellbeing of country up the top. That is the primary goal, married with the purpose of the project. And we have to, and we're fortunate in the context of what we now call Victoria, that there is significant data that we can draw from to understand before country, or what I call before country, meaning that the time for country before planning and architecture took away or minimized the agency of country. Um, And we can build that picture and we can understand what should be there, what what species should call that home, how the seasons work, um, how water should flow across that country. And we can then use that to inform how we make decisions. Now, of course, that's not done with cultural knowledge. It's not done with interpreting cultural knowledge most of the time, unless we can engage. But we have to start somewhere because we have a responsibility to place, to country, even if it's not our country. I don't live and work on my own country. But as an Aboriginal person working in this context, I find it very difficult to work on a project that I know is going to destroy country.
1: I think you're right, Sarah, and we've mentioned that today, that, you know, we all live here, therefore we have responsibility, irrespective of anything else. Um, And that's really, really important for us all to remember like to just get on to talking about our design our design studios that we ran um, because that's been a really important milestone for us as the Birung Council in our work advocating for the Great Birung Parkland and really our way of trying to infiltrate into the community, seed some ideas and learning and knowledge. And we're really clear that education has the power to inform change and influence actions um, and influence decisions. So we'd been talking about the idea of the Great Burung Parkland and one of the stepping stones for sharing that idea and kind of developing it was to approach the three design schools um, within Melbourne to undertake some design studios um, for us on the Great Birrung Parkland. So we had four studios run early in twenty twenty one. Um there's one run by the city uh, not the city of Melbourne, sorry. University of Melbourne and Alex Felsen and Jef Jeff Greenaway, um, and I think Kirstine Wallace well Kirstine was it yours? No, she was at Melbourne Uni one, sorry, I'm getting my wires crossed here, um, ran that studio. Um, We had Sarah ran studio with architecture students through Monash University and then we had two design studios run at RMIT, one led by Jock um, and another led by Liz Herbert and so we had an incredible pool of students. I don't know how many students all up between the four studios but it was an incredible kind of groundswell of knowledge that was shared. Um, One of the key responsibilities we took on as part of starting those studios, we held a day as part of Melbourne Design Week where we had a morning with all of the students together at Deakin Edge where the students had the privilege of having Uncle Dave and Aunty Marg at their beckon. and... Um, really to listen to them and so that was a foundation of the work. Um, Obviously the studio leads um, which was also incredible and then we had a boat tour up the Yarra and then we had some really incredible design work that came out of those four studios and that's something that's really helped us develop our understanding through seeing what those students learnt and it helps us build our knowledge and also brings us here today to continue the relationship with everyone who's learning through this process with us and I was just saying to Jock, you know, it, it's the foundation of our connection as professionals and now we have discussions and we move things forward together and that's really kind of indicative of what we want to see have happen here today after all of you have been here listening to us and then you go home and you talk about it, you think about what Uncle Dave and Uncle Andrew have said and sit with that and it might take a while for all of the things to kind of fall into place but it's really the work that we need to do as a shared community to understand our responsibility to the river. So Sarah and Jock, from the start of the design studios we had design work sessions at Deakin Edge um, and up until today, there's a bit of time that's gone since then, particularly for you and also maybe for your students if you'd like to comment, how has working with the elders through those studios changed your understanding of the river and its lands?
4: Okay, thank you. Um, thank you, Alex, and, and thanks for everything that's come before. I think that's... Um, as you said, Uncle Andrew, we could probably call it quits here and say we've learnt a hell of a lot, so thank you. Um, look, I think um, the studios were a wonderful opportunity. Um, they're, they're, uh, and I must say, also acknowledge Steve Minturn, who co-taught with me. We, we ran a double studio, so Steve from Office... Um, which was also another wonderful opportunity. Um, from, I guess, from the perspective of, I think, what what students were able to learn, and just to put a little bit of context, obviously in 2021 um, we had that wonderful day at at, um, at The Edge at Federation Square and Artie Marg was just beautiful that day and, and her, uh, you know, kind of sharing of her knowledge um, and that kind of helicopter view and Uncle Dave's was um, was really wonderful on the day and that set the students up for a way of working and a way of understanding the river um, I think from my perspective I think what was wonderful was to see students start in the way that often happens where that thing is an object with water in it and it runs in between two banks and then to gradually over time understand that Um, possibly there's bigger implications beyond the top of the bank. Um, You know, we go that way, that the the river isn't just this thing here, that it meets salt water further down and it is part of a huge catchment up to Healesville and beyond and what the implications of that are. Um, I think that though students were also able to grapple um, through that framing, with the idea of seasonality and um, perhaps ephemerality, and, which are linked concepts. So the thing doesn't just exist down there as, a, as a, a thing in a bank, that it is a living entity, that it does want to move about. And then I think to start to grasp some of the implications for urbanism and for Melbourne, You know, what could that start to offer back into the city fabric and how might we start to, to rethink that? And then to start thinking about, in that context, what is a park? What could the Great Birrarung, Birrarung Parkland offer back to Melbourne, in terms of doing things differently, but also in terms of Australia and the way that we think and rethink this typology of park and parkland in relation with a river to its at its centre and in relation to that river. So I think that was that in itself was quite amazing. Um, I think also students started to think about this idea that. We, we don't control and that's come up um, a lot through, through this morning. And I think how to work with what the river wants to do and be was kind of central to it. And there was some amazing little, uh, I suppose, r- inferences and relationships drawn between the rethinking of the typology... ...and the action of what the river wants to be and, and could be and can be. And the restorative effects of that. I think um, you're right, Sarah, that once we start to engage with that at the centre... ...then that idea of restoration is not something that we need to kind of do. It flows and, and some of those outcomes were really beautifully um, rendered. I think, um, I think for me, the lovely thing was to see... I've, I've done some work... Um, in other areas of Australia and to see the intersection and the overlaps of those knowledge systems, which I think, Sarah, is something that we do grapple with um, as in terms of placing an extraordinary burden on um, our First Nations people to engage with us on our terms, and that's not the way that we should be doing things. We're very privileged to be able to be here today entering into that conversation, and how do we take the learnings from that and actually activate them? Um, I was having a conversation with one of my Barkindji collaborators, um, Sophia Pierce, just a couple of weeks ago, and they'd finally been able to get back down onto some river country, which has been underwater for for months, actually. Um, And she said, you know, the the amazing thing was, it was so gentle that she'd left a shovel and she'd gotten into trouble for leaving a shovel, leaning against a little um, kind of kitchen shelter, and when she got back in there months later, there was the shovel and everything had grown. It was green and lush and beautiful. She left it in, a, in just sort of pushed it into some dust, and it, it, everything had transformed. The landscape had transformed. It was restored, if you like. It had had a drink, and that was. Um, it was in that context that I first learnt, and I shared this story with Uncle Dave a couple of weeks ago. the the The, the one thing, the fundamental thing for landscape students, that you know, and I. I am adamant that we must understand that water only runs downhill. It can only run downhill. But, of course, the first thing I learned um, there was that, no, 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 Water, water can run uphill. Water does run uphill. And when it does, when it's allowed to, as part of that function, what the river wants to do, it's an amazing thing because it goes slowly, slowly, slowly uphill and then slowly, slowly, slowly back downhill, and it can take months, and the transformative effect of that is just incredible.
0: Exactly, exactly. It needs the time to collect that data. Yep. It can't just rush through because we've guided it with channels and it's got to get in and get out as fast as what it is because it's dangerous to us. It needs to move, ebb and flow. It's not a sea that has a tide that happens twice a day. It's a seasonal thing, but no one yet knows what the seasons are. We think about the one-in-a-hundred-year flood, the one-in-a-fifty-year flood, but in actual fact, if the river was in its natural state, it would flood every three years, but you would never notice it. It still does it now, and most people don't notice it because they're not reading country yet.
4: And wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if we could start to allow this river to do that in in places? It would transform our relationship to that river. It would transform our relationship to this thing that we... I think sometimes erroneously call landscape because it's something we can work on and to understand that it's actually working on us. So that was a wonderful opportunity and, and thank you so much for providing that for us.
3: I think I'll answer the question backwards um, in that we were having a conversation about uh, I guess the impact on the students the other day and one of the students um, that we had said to me recently that the moment the, the hot, I guess the impact of the studio changed their perspective on everything because the moment they realized that country was their client, it fundamentally reshaped the way they thought about architecture so that was a pretty good outcome um, <laughs> but uh, I guess the way that we approached the studio was really talking about those values rights and laws of con- uh, values rights and laws of country, and in the context of the river. Um, Uh, really challenging or trying to speculate on what that means. Does the river have the right to flood? Yes. Does it have the right to be in flux? Yes. Does it have the right to be a home? Yes. Does it have the right to nurture? Does it have the right to destroy? Does it have the right to do all of these things? And through that process and then listening to um, Uncle Dave um, particularly talk about the river and its rights and its story from from how it was formed, um, the students then, which is actually quite challenging for students to do, is really thought about what are the values that are driving my project. So in some ways, it's not even about the outcome of the projects that came from the studios. It's about the fact that the students, for the first time, sat down and thought, "Okay, if I have values guiding my decision making, how can I draw those values from what I heard from the traditional owners to inform the decisions that I'm making?" Which I think every project should do. Um, and I guess that really, that was, ch- was really, really challenging for the students because it's not something that we'd necessarily teach architecture students how to do. Um, and it's something that I think we should. Um, it will change because we've changed what it means to be an architect, the definition of an architect. So that will then flow on into universities and they'll all have to teach um, First Nations views on country in that context, obviously done appropriately. Um, but When we went to start through and we challenged all of these questions, we were also asking the students to map what's here now, which is the standard way that everyone is taught what to do, and then we asked the students to map what was here before, and most of them were incredibly surprised that this was all a brackish wetland. There were sort of seasonal uh, wetlands that happened over in Ma, that the path of the river had changed, that it had widened three times, that so much had happened to it, all because somebody decided to build here and therefore once something is built here, it's an asset and therefore it's a risk. Um, and everything in the context of the built environment and the laws that we have around everything is a risk management to assets and people. And being able to break the students out of that and have them question why did we build here? Should we have built here? Should we unbuild and allow the river to flow and be? Um, and sometimes architecture is not the answer. <laughs> um, it was, it was a, uh, I guess, a really powerful uh, moments of realization across that studio. Um, what the architectural outcomes are? Again, it's, it's a challenging context for architecture. We always talk about landscape architecture as being. I guess, more connected and more able to um, influence our repair in these contexts. But I guess our challenge to the students was, well, architecture, again, fundamentally reshapes environments. How are we doing that in a way that's allowing water to flow, that's allowing the river to flood, that's allowing or recreating homes for the birds and insects that should live in this context? Why is it only just for humans? And the I guess the overall outcome is removing people from the centre and putting country in the centre. And in this context of the studio, putting the river in the centre and letting the river guide decision making. So I think that was quite powerful realizations over the course of that studio for those students. And I think that we
1: knew there was gonna be a really interesting comparison when we set up the studios to the fact that we were having three landscape studios and an architecture studio and the challenge there But that's just two professions who have a particular way of understanding the world. And, you know, then there's a broader challenge to the rest of the community and the knowledge that they have and the understanding of their role in the world and what can they bring as well. And we've often talked about the fact in carrying this studio idea forward, how, we, how might we kind of engage through purely an ecological lens or, you know, other ways of getting people to think about the role of the river and really build on that work that we've done. Um, and it was really great to see the difference in the studios um, and great to see, you know, architects kind of hurting their brains to try and think about these, this place where they normally stick their objects and that's maybe a bit rude and kind of simplifying architecture, but... Don't start a war. <laughs>
3: If you want my opinion, I think landscape architecture should come first and then architecture second. Uh, <laughs> <and> <laughs> How I'm many landscape in architects artists? in the room agree with that? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the reality is that the way that we build now is that the architect is the lead um, and they cite a building and then the landscape architecture is done around it afterwards and I think that's fundamentally wrong. It should be the other way around.
1: Can you just go and talk to all the clients and all the people writing the briefs for us? Wow. We've, I've got questions here, but I think we've kind of actually overlapped a lot of them. Jock's got something to say. Yeah, great. Well,
4: I, as a landscape architect, I, I agree with your assertion wholeheartedly, Sarah. But I do think that, that the profession of landscape architecture has to deal with the problem of landscape. And, and I think that is – and your proposition of centering country – bring without and, and because the other thing for landscape is not to not to recolonize because it's already done at once not to recolonize the conceptual thinking of country but to center that and that that's a that's our obligation and that's a tricky thing to do and when, when we do that i'd be quite happy for landscape then if it's still called landscape to be out, taking the 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 lead and um, subordinating architecture's role in that process. I think.
3: I think it's for both of our industries, the legacy of where they've come from is obviously challenging. The architecture it goes back to Greek architecture and if another competition wins based on Greek ideas of architecture, I will I don't know what I'll do but I won't be happy about it. Um, but you're right, in the context of landscape architecture, it's, it's considering plants as ornament uh, rather than um, as Uncle Dave would say, the circular ecology and how that fits into that context and um, architecture is always about people and it's breaking the shackles of those, that legacy and finding a way for them to work together to actually improve the health and well-being of country.
1: Sarah, when we were preparing for this discussion, um, you and I were talking about how you set up your studio and you wanted to challenge the students in the way that they thought. Um, and particularly in how you set up the brief for the studio. Is there anything you want to add um, to what you've already said based on that challenge?
3: Um, I think I've talked about it a a little bit before. Uh, It is hard to rewire people's brains over a 12-week course, Um, and I think it's something that systemically needs to happen through education across the entire degree, which will happen, as I said. Um, it will come into effect and we'll have generations of architects coming through in the next five to ten years who will have been taught about country, who will realise that their obligation is to, for every decision that they make, is to improve the health and wellbeing of country, that there are aspirations of traditional custodians about caring for country and that these need to be factored in in the way that we design built environments. Um, I think I've probably said everything that I needed to say other than... I think we all just need to take a step back and, and challenge every single thing that we have been taught and recast it in the context of country at the centre and the health and wellbeing of country at the centre. And if we do that, I mean, all of these systems were built by people, right? All of the systems that we operate within planning, architecture, the, the legacy and the theories and all those sorts of things about um, the work that we do. If we, that means we can change it. We created it, we can change it. And so if we put what the elders are saying at the centre, How does that change the way that we think about what we're doing and the outcome of what we do?
1: And I think, for me, one of the things that I've been thinking about around particularly what it is to be a student and (laughs) over 20 years ago, I was at RMIT where Jock teaches. Now, I don't have any memory of anyone ever teaching me anything about Indigenous knowledge and culture and connection to country um when I was at r m i t um there's probably a few r m i t students of similar vintage to me here in the audience maybe they they can remember but i don't um and I think it's incredible and it's just you know couldn't happen sooner basically that this starts this stuff starts getting coming through the university system um and jock um I'm just wondering if you've got any thoughts on um what you're seeing. Um, the students being presented with and, you know, are we doing enough in that space for our students so that they are really kind of bringing this legacy through with their education?
4: Yeah, thanks, Alex. So, I, I think um, we're not, of course. We can always do more and it's, it's um, like you said, Uncle Andrew, um, it's it's knowing that we can always do more. We're doing the best we can but we, we need to do more. Um, and, you know, the work you're doing, Sarah, is... is Giving that a a good kick along and hearing from Uncle Dave in these contexts is is also doing that. So um, what I I think just to also to broaden it out is to say that um, our education, so I'm of a particular age. I I went through school not hearing it was it was almost like, you know, the, the great silence, wasn't it? I mean we didn't hear, we didn't know, we weren't taught. So We've, we've had to start to, to do that. Now, I've, I've got a 15-year-old daughter and I'm amazed at what level of um, of thinking and knowledge and engagement with local elders she's already been exposed to through her primary and lower secondary education. So I think that's an amazing thing. And I think to slightly flip um, what we're giving to students, what, I've, what I love is that students are coming to us and saying, no, 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 no. You got to give us more of this. We, you know, we, we, you can't start there, and not, not just to me, but across the board. So it's, it's that's a product of a, an earlier education system. We're getting our students to, uh, that are, are coming in, and they're interested in the particularities of place, which I think is a is a fantastic starting point for landscape architects. It's that kind of very meticulous understanding, the reading, if you like, the fishing, the what are you doing, you know, you're listening to the rustle of the leaves, those kinds of things. So, that's, that's amazing. And I think um, what's also beautiful is that that is actually impacting on practice. So, we're now seeing students going, you know, graduates going into practice and they're saying to practice, no, nah, it, it, it's just can't you can't do it that way we need and it's not just about projects it's about a whole way of being in practice it is becoming an everyday you know an everyday practice which is a remarkable thing so I think we're 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 living in a time of great change which is heartening all we need to do is make sure we keep pushing the pedal down a little bit and, and kicking it along
3: if I could add to that I'd say that we also need systemic change yeah. um, where we can't as I said before, we can't engage with elders on every project, but there are things that could be built into the systems that we interface with that re- force for some, carrot and stick approach, I guess. Um, the And not just architects, because architects do like one to five percent of buildings. There's so many other buildings that happen out there that are done by um, sort of housing development companies and the like. But if we put the values, rights and laws of country into planning, and I'm sorry if anyone's ever been in the audience at anything before, I think I say this at every talk and I'm going to keep saying it, but if the, if the values, rights and laws of country were at the centre of planning policy, that would create wide-scale change because almost every project interfaces with the planning system. If those aspirations of traditional custodians were embedded in planning and the planning schemes that we have to conform to in the context of our work, Wide-scale change. And that would mean that you might not need to be there every single time to talk about what that means. And then there's the capacity to grow and build and focus attention for traditional custodians on projects that are of importance to them rather than every project where every architect is like, well, this is important to me, so I need you to to work with me on this project. Um, You know, we've also, like, master planning country, um, having hundreds of year plans. There's so many things that could actually systematize a lot of these values into the way that we operate in the built environment and give license to people, um, to practitioners to actually improve the health and well-being of country and to know where to start. Uh, but without that, again, it's it's so reliant on individuals and so reliant on the time of traditional custodians, which is just not possible for every project. It's just not. Uh, I'd love it to be, but it's not. Um, and elders have other priorities uh, in their own communities and so I guess I'm interested particularly in systemic change and how, how we can uh, you know do a lot of things like what if the beer Council had more power what would that mean for the way that every project that operates within the corridor or within the lands of the living entity uh, has to conform to what would that mean?
1: Thanks, Sarah. I have I have heard you talk about that before, as you know. i big fan of your Black Artecture series that you've hosted here at M Pavilion and I, it makes a lot of sense to me, um, what you've just said. So good that this audience has heard that too. Hopefully enough people start hearing it and we get a bit of change happening on that front. Um, I'd like to defer back to Uncle Dave and Uncle Andrew, just if you've had... Any thoughts or responses listening to Jock and Sarah talk particularly ha- about how they've responded to with the studio work um, and um, I guess the developments that are happening in this space for us all sharing this responsibility?
0: Yep, I certainly have. Um, it's not that I've got an opinion on everything, by the way, because I do, but the reality is I first started working with Melbourne University about 2015. And uh, I was asked to go in there and talk to some young students uh, in an evening. And it was about the environment. So I thought I was talking to environmental, up-and-coming environmental scientists. But I got in there and I found out later on that anybody who goes to a university, no matter what their field is, there are certain hours that they have to fill of going to other lectures or presentations. So I found myself talking to... Landscape architects, engineers, people from the justice system, uh, people from the political system, people who are ecologists but not necessarily environmental scientists, so lawyers, a whole range of young students, who were filling in their time. Now we're all very surprised that when I started talking, that the big screen behind me didn't light up. There was no PowerPoint, and I spoke about the environment, and I spoke about the political way that the environment works, the legal framework that environment works. I'm talking without humans in it. And I said to these people, they all asked me at the end of the day, said, how can we find out more about your Aboriginal culture? How can we get a hold of you? And I said, well, you don't need to get a hold of me. What you actually need to do, and I'm I'm just hearing that it's happening. I said, you need to challenge your lecturers Instead of learning what, what they're going to teach you, challenge what they're teaching you. If you've got doubts, question it. And I'm glad to see that's happening because I know that they're doing that. So early education is the really important thing. Before their mind gets clogged up with complexities of their particular field that they're going in, if they've got a philosophy before they go into it, and that's what I'm teaching basically is a philosophy of our culture, that they have the opportunity to challenge that, and I've got to say, probably 20 years ago, 30 years ago, if you wanted to challenge your teachers, you wouldn't be allowed to. You'd be, you know, they'd be, you'd be told, no, this is a curriculum. You do this and you'll get a pass or you'll get a fail. Young children at primary school, well, I, hate, well, I don't hate working with them, but, then, but they are the most challenging because they will ask questions. So one thing I've learnt about teaching adults and I'm, when I say adults, I'm talking anybody over 45 because my daughter's just turned 43 uh, and she's still my child. Although she's a p- woman in her own right. I used to say everyone under 40, but now she's over 40. I've, I've put it up to 45 because she's still learning. I, one of the other roles that I do is I'm also uh, a knowledge holder about Aboriginal fire. And I've had to do some presentations to emergency management and forest fire management. And there was one man that I've been working with for quite a while, and he's not Indigenous. And we did a co-presentation. And he stood up, and I think he said some very powerful words. He said, if you ever want to understand Aboriginal fire, you have to unlearn everything you've learned about fire in the modern context, because otherwise you will never grasp... The basic management. And I think that's the same for any discipline that anybody goes into. You need to, if you really want to understand, rather than coming and talk to me or Uncle Andrew or, or uh, to Sarah or, or another Aboriginal person, first of all, unlearn everything you've done so that you can actually hear what we're saying and then learn from that again and apply to those things that you unlearn. Put aside for a while, learn us put it next to there and say how does this fit into there and I believe it'll be a much easier path on you and definitely less of a burden on our capacity to be able to come out and talk to each and every individual which we would all love to help but there's just not enough of us there so I'm glad that there are changes yeah. steals
2: every Sunday. <laughs> No, no, but uh, that's respect, see? It's stuff I'm listening and learning too, so I'm not the expert in everything. Never have professed to be, but I'll contribute as much as I know.
0: I'll say one more thing to that, actually, Hmm. and something my dad told me a long time ago. Now, growing up as we are, young teenagers, young men, we think we know everything. We go to bed, yep, I know what I'm doing tomorrow. But my dad brought me up short one day when I was getting in a bit of trouble... And he said, Don't ever think you know everything. And the one way to check on that is that before you go to bed, this is the words he said to me, never go to bed until you've learned something new. So I actually do that every day. Sometimes I think I've had a good day and I've learned something, or someone's learned from me and there's a project and it's all successful and all that kind of thing, because it's successful right then at that moment. Will it be successful 10 years down the track? Will the knowledge system have changed? Will the governance have changed? Will the maintenance have changed? So I make sure that whatever I've done, on a, uh, and I'll do it tonight, did I get my message across today? Do I, am I going to feel good when I walk away from here? And I will. But I'll debrief myself when I get home and say, did I really get the message across? Could I have said more? Should I have said less? Also, what did I learn off the other people on this panel? And what have I learned? Because I know you're all going to come up to us after we're finished and want have individual questions. More importantly, what didn't I learn? I like people to ask me questions that I might not have the answer so that before I go to sleep tonight, I can question what don't I know, what do I know. So I get up the next day and learn something new again. I've gotten over the thing that I don't know everything. There is so much more that I need to learn from country, I need to learn from my elders but I'm still learning from my grandkids too because they can always surprise me. All those primary school kids can still challenge me. Yeah, that's it. That's what I want to add to your thing.
1: i
2: leave it at that. <laughs>
1: Thank you both. I think um, it's probably a nice time in the discussion. I think we've got maybe about 15 minutes left to see if there's any questions from the audience. Um, I'm sure all of your brains are exploding as mine tends to do, particularly when talking to Uncle Dave and Uncle Andrew and also Sarah and Jock, like all of them. I'm in awe of all that's of their brains. like me, does it? <laughs> oh. she doesn't bite
0: me, doesn't it? Exploding with
1: just what you have shared, Uncle Dave, is, you know, we have chats and I can get emotional. Um, is there anyone that's got a question now? I think either Erin or Chris has got a mic. Has anyone got a question they want to ask anyone on the panel? Hand up.
2: Don't just, don't just swat a fly because you'll get the microphone.
3: <laughs> just uh, it's great to be in this company of custodians and knowledge from so many angles. It's such a great ecology and so I'm, I'm guessing this crowd's got it too. So thanks for letting me speak first. Um, I'm, I'm sitting here hearing us talk about design, I guess, in some respects and should uh, landscape come first or architecture come first? But I'm looking at those three trees, but the palms behind us as well. And seeing that also we're here in a place of design. There's a place of performance over there. There's a place of art and objects over there. So I actually wonder if culture needs to come first and if we're all playing a part in that. And then I go, no, not first, together. How do we actually practice all simultaneously, but in concert with each other? That's my question for the whole group. I don't know.
1: Great question. Um, do one of the elders, uncles, want
0: to uh, Again, you're going right back to my welcome. We need to do it together. A lot of people say to me, uh, you yeah, know, talking about treaty, uh, land handback and native title and all those kind of things, and they're all afraid that they've got to take out everything that's been put here for the last 200 years. But I can tell you, if we were going to do that, I'm not going to be running around in a possum skin cloak. <laughs> you know, those things are not viable today. So it's not about removing what's been done. It's about adapting it to fit back into culture and to do that exactly right. We have to walk together. We have to talk together. We have to learn from each other and find the place for these impositions, which a lot of people call these things as, as an imposition, but how we can use them where possible to enhance the culture, which is buried under this beautifully mown grass and it's, you know those roads over there, and it's these buildings behind us, um, we can't tear them all down and start again. How do we, when they need maintenance, and we need to do work around them, can we uh, adapt them and make them actually complement each other? Because we as humans, not all Aboriginals, but we're all indigenous to somewhere, and we've all got to live together, and believe me, and I actually, when I started doing land management, that was one of my education tools. If you can take a native plant that lives in harmony with a non-native plant, that's a dem- demonstration about a reading country about humans can actually live together. And you can do the same with buildings as well. You can do it with any landscape and on any scale. Did you, with careful management, very careful management and maintenance, it is quite easy to do. But you have to have that long-term, not the 50-year vision, that we got for the Birirung Council, uh, for the Yarra, I should say, uh, but, the, but the thousand year genera- thousands of generations into the future. What we're leaving behind is not something that's going to fall down in 20 years. It's something that's going to last for 100 years and 300 years and 400 years and 500 years, which is every time I see an 800-year-old red gum that's still living in a landscape that hasn't been disturbed and I see what lives underneath it, around it and in it, and it's been doing it for 800 years. That's what we should be planning for as we start to adapt and improve the Yarra and its lands. Do
3: you want to say something? Um, The the way I think about this is uh, kinship systems and there are multiple aspects to kinship systems, but the, the aspect of it that I'm talking about is our ancestors, when they had to make a decision for country, would all come together. And uh, this is sort of oversimplifying it, but um, go with me. Um, that every person who was uh, in that space had obligation to a part of country. No one person knows everything. Um, each, people, each, each person is responsible for the knowledge about something. Maybe multiple things, but for the context of this conversation, they're responsible for something. And in order to make a decision for country all of the the aspects of country that are going to be impacted are represented through the voices of those people who hold the knowledge. So as a collective, you can make that kind of decision. Um, And I guess what I'm trying to say in this context is, yeah, there is a design slant on this conversation um, because I guess that's the world we're having this conversation in, but there are people in our communities that are responsible for the more culture-based. There are people that are responsible for the ecologies, the, the animal species, as it goes on and on and on. Now what's happened, um, and effectively where cultural load comes into this conversation is that there's now so few Aboriginal people working in, inside of those industries that can make decisions for country and there aren't enough traditional custodians, unfortunately, to be able to speak for every single um, project that we're working on. I've said that a lot today, sorry, but it's the truth. Um, that all of that, th- there is an expectation on Elders, there is an expectation on Aboriginal people to know everything and we don't and we never would and never will. Um, so I think we need to, we will work on the built environment side, Jock and I, that's I guess the the charge that we've given ourselves in this context and collectively bring together those people and then other people will work on the cultural side of things and then collectively we're all doing it. I think we, the, the paralysis and the fear that comes um, particularly with non-Indigenous people when they start to enter this space is fear of doing or saying the wrong thing because they look at the entirety of it and go, oh my God, that is so big, I'm never going to understand it, that's huge. But if you take on one responsibility or one aspect of it and know that as much as you can, then you're contributing to a collective whole and then we're all working together. It's the way that I see it. I don't know if you've got different views that are in this context.
2: um, In terms of treaty uh, with different traditional owner groups, um, all these aspects can be taken up by the the traditional group, in terms of their treaty aspirations. Um, You're talking about how complex that is. Well, our treaty aspirations are going to be multitude. Yeah? Good? (laughs) Uh, So we're already planning, the First Peoples Assembly is already planning, you know, four or five generations into the future about how we can be self-determining, how we can be self-managing, enabling our young people to have an education but work in our industry, in all the variations that there are. It's about having the opportunity to get off the public purse, but it needs to be a start, there needs to be a starting point, there needs to be a kick-off point. But in terms of taking into consideration all the changes that can take place, that needs to bring the broader community along with us too. Yeah? It's not just us getting ahead, although everybody else is, has an opportunity to get ahead in your own system in your own life and we should be able to do that too we've been held back for quite a long time um i'll just go back a bit uh anybody from uh, coburg or brunswick yeah okay so you, you understand the name change of uh moreland council to marybeck council fundamentally we need to change those things moreland council had an association with global slavery racism and purposeful dispossession. And we put that to the council in December 21 and they agreed to change their name in 2022. And that actually formally occurred. So they became Marybeck Council on the 26th of September 2022, which was really significant for me because it was my sister's birthday. (laughs) So it was kind of a a good uh, memorial thing for her too. But you can just see how complexity can create change, but simplicity can create change too. So we don't have to look at things as so complex that we can never overcome them. We can never achieve them. Because it's too hard. Most people don't do it. And that's where I get onto the the federal voice. The voice to Parliament. I know it's not an environment thing, but it has a lot of impact on what the environment outcome is, right? So just to be clear. There's a referendum at the end of the year. Vote yes. That'd be a good thing. Don't get confused by the complex question that may well come. But vote yes. Why? Because fundamentally for too long, the federal government has not listened to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people about their various needs. It isn't just say, give us more money so we can go down the pub. Seriously, there's a lot of people who still think Aboriginal people are you no know, hopers and, and alcoholics. That's not true. You talk about the Northern Territory intervention, geez, nearly 10 years ago now. The federal government determined to suspend five pieces of legislation just so that they could march the army into local communities. Three out of those five are still in suspension. Why? It's already been proven in the last 10 years that the Northern Territory intervention was baseless. The ministers that got up in, in, uh, on the newsreels and you know, said it was such an urgent thing, we had to do something about it, all later said, oh yeah, well, I just had to say that. Sorry. How many millions of dollars co- was caused for that? You still hear backbenchers today. Aboriginal people get so much money. We, we, we really don't, you know, this fallacy that Aboriginal sure people get a new land cruiser every year. Shit, I wish I would add one of those. Because I don't drive a land cruiser, I never have. So, we have to look at things in their context and how we can get a better outcome for the river. You know, making sure built environment... I'll still try and grapple with it. It sounds pretty complex words, eh? Built environment It's basically something you can be in, eh? Really? So... Um, how you can actually live some of your life in a building, however long it is, work or home. <laughs> so. And um, yeah, it's a way of actually making sure that we can uh, participate. We need to be, continue to be able to participate. So um, don't think things are so drastically out of tune, but when people ask me for help, I go out of my way to help them. When I ask for help, that doesn't always reciprocate (laughs) as much as I would like. So these are the opportunities we asked for reciprocity, you know, reciprocal rights. And so, um, you know, what we can do for an environmental outcome can affect us all, can affect all our children into the future. So it's part of the treaty aspiration. What's the future going to look like? It's all part of the complex web that we are weaving. So... Thank you for the opportunity to speak today.
1: Thank you, Uncle Andrew. And thank you for raising the referendum. I think that's really great reminder and really good to hear you advocating to us all for that. Um, I believe we have another question in the back. Thank you. Um, my question is around um, the... The lands belong to the river, and um, hearing about the system change that is required, embedding values, rights, and law in policy, and and so I guess my question is, how does that intersect with the Wirringa being a living entity versus having personhood? Um, um, status. I know, Dr. Aaron, I know, <laughs> but I, I'm quite curious about that intersection and what your views are um, as well as the panel. Thank you. I'll go to the panel, but there's someone in the audience that might do a good job answering that question. Does anyone on the panel want to respond to that?
0: Um, that's why we have, we are not just the Bear run Council here. There's many more members and some of them are more specialists than others. It's the same as you talked about the concept of elders. Uh, someone else is asking about it. Not all elders are all things to all people. We're all specialists in our own background. And you've heard me and Uncle uh, talking backwards and forwards. You know, I consider um, Uncle Andrew very much in the political space. He considers me in the land management space. That question is about legalities. Uh, I do know that in the writing up of the Run Protection Act, personhood was really what we were seeking but as a first step and you got to take that first step which again comes back to the voice if we don't get it this time yeah even if or if we do get it and it doesn't work at least we can say we tried it's a small step we don't do it and say as they're saying now it never worked before why will it work again which is rubbish because when I went into land mansion I was told I was fail as well Uh, and I've proved everybody wrong I love the word can't because that just means impossible ...and the impossible we can do, miracles take a bit longer... ...and legally we will get personhood for the river. Thank you.
2: Well, if we talk about the river as the river... uh, ...like a person, it has feelings, it's got attitude... ...it's got capacity, it gives us scientific feedback... Um, ...it's not that different to a corporation. You register a corporation, it becomes a person becomes a legal person, a legal entity, yeah? So there's not that much of a difficult proposition to think about that. Um, if we talk about it in first person, it it has a personality and it, it will deliver because it keeps delivering. It hasn't dried up, so it'll keep coming. Reciprocal rights, if we treat it better, it'll continue to deliver better outcomes for us. So as if we treat it, talk to it, it'll... it'll It'll feel it. You, you talk to plants, the, any plants you grow at home, you talk to them and you feel them and you, you, they, they respond. Yeah. They haven't got a brain. Well, I don't think, but, <laughs> um, but they respond. Some plants they, more than humans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I want to just push people's thinking back to 1967. What happened then? The referendum. The last successful referendum.
0: When Aboriginal people became persons.
2: Ah. So... Therefore,
0: with legal rights.
2: Yeah. But two questions were put in that ballot. One was to increase the number of seats in the House of Representatives. Purposeful aspiration by the government, because they wanted to have more seats so they could maintain their government power. Correct? Yes. The second question was to include Aboriginal people in the population. Now that just said that they'll get a Guernsey in the in future. Um, what's that thing where they take a census. census? We get included in the census as as a person, as a, as a number of people, uh, to be collected in for what's necessary: transport, roads, ports, all sorts of things. Yeah. We didn't become Australian citizens there and then. We didn't have the right to vote there and then. Prior to that, we were born and registered under flora and fauna acts of each state or territory. Yeah, 1960, 1968, my mother got my birth certificate. I didn't have it before then. So, our right to vote didn't happen until a couple of years later when they changed the Electoral Act... We didn't have the right to be considered a citizen because they had to change the Citizenship Act as well. The federal constitution is so divisive. It's discriminatory. Number 23, clause 23 of the federal constitution says that I can be given the right to vote by any premier or chief minister of a state or territory at any general election. How would you like that hanging over your head? I say that to citizens that are becoming citizens of Australia at citizenship ceremonies, and they go, oh, I said, well, you've just become a citizen, you've got the right to vote at the next election without any discriminatory factor. But I do. I'm offended by that, because I'm sure... Every time there's an election on, they want my vote because they want to know which way they're going to be. They're going to be in power or they're not? Yeah? So, constitutional change needs to occur. The national referendum that's coming up later this year that will include Aboriginal people to provide a voice to Parliament requires constitutional change. They've already drafted that bill up, they, I think they just put it out the other day. We had a conversation with Uncle Patrick Dodson, Senator Dodson. And he was saying all these things about how things were going to happen and the possibilities and we should still keep our noses to the grindstone. But at the end of the day, we still need to do treaty in Victoria to lead the way because we're the only ones doing it around Australia. When the Uluru Statement was done in 19, sorry, 2017, the Prime Minister of the day without even conceptually understanding it, said, no, we're not going to do that because there's already people elected to parliament to represent you. Well, I'm personally offended by that because those people don't don't represent me. They don't knock on my door and say, Andrew, what would you like to say to the parliament on an Aboriginal issue? They don't. They follow their party line now, I know this is getting political and it's a, it's a space that we all need to sort of play but in... But it was a political time. question from yeah, over yeah, there it anyway. Was, yeah, But the, the net effect is, if we don't all understand that, we, we can't all agree about how we can drive forward, yeah? So, again, it goes back to treaty. Which do you have first? Do you have federal voice? Do you have treaty? It doesn't matter. Whichever one lands first. But the federal voice is much more complex than just having two people just going to parliament saying, oh, we'd like to tell you about what all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people needs around the country. That's not gonna happen. There's gonna have to be a system that's supported to make that work. During the treaty, uh, during our treaty development in Victoria, the First Peoples, we had uh, conversations with traditional owners around Vancouver, because Vancouver's very similar to Melbourne. Built environments, trams, rail, road, ports—very similar structure and population density. And they is, their treaty took 13 years to get signed off. That's four electoral cycles in their speaking. We went, ah, oh, we've got to halve that. We've Got to make that four or five years, otherwise, yeah, we're going to be—we're going to be too many elders are dying. They're going to miss out on seeing the advantages that their grandkids have been able. To Uptake. Other people that we spoke to were Sami. Sami people of Finland, Norway and Sweden. They have a parliament, a Sami parliament in each one of those nation states. But they only get funded about half of the mainstream one. They've got the same responsibility to go through the same legislation to review it, but they get paid half. Now is that disrespectful or what? <laughs> we thought about the proposition and going to the state about that and we go, mm. I've got a fair idea what the state budget to run the parliament is. I don't think they're going to offer us half of that. Might be even less than a quarter. So it all comes down to numbers and money, essentially, because you can't really do stuff on goodwill. You can. We're doing goodwill thing today. We're asking you to appreciate the river and do your bit about asking other people and friends and family to do their bit to consider the betterment of the river too. Yeah? But at the bigger picture, if we don't look at those bigger pictures, the river's going to lose some of its aspect, Yeah, so lose some of its importance. And there's lots of other waterways. We just happen to be talking about the Burong because it goes through the city. And such an important thing that uh, Melbourne and Victoria is related to internationally. So... You know, we need to uh, still go back to that point of grounding and saying, yes, we can do that. Not, oh, is it going to cost so much, you know? Thanks.
1: Thanks for bringing it back to the river, Uncle Andrew. Um, But also, thank you. I think, you know, it's great that we have your political knowledge to help support our work on the council because I think that makes us stronger. And Uncle Dave, as you mentioned, you know, we're all got our different specialist fields on the council. Erin, I just do you feel like we've answered the question? We're over time. Great. If anyone wants to get into more legalities, go to Erin. <laughs> Sorry, Erin. Look, I'd just like to thank everyone for coming today. It's really important for us to feel like we've got a platform and um, we're helping the learnings that we're going through as a council uh, um, and that we can share that with everyone, um, and you know, this conversation around the Great Barrier Parkland will continue, and it will grow and snowball, and hopefully, I don't know what the time frame is, but hopefully, at a point in time, everyone who lives in the city of Melbourne understands what we're talking about and is living and breathing that. Um, thank you so much to all of the panel. Um, you're all incredibly aspiring people, inspiring, inspiring people, um, and have influenced me. A lot in the work that we've been doing with the council so thank you for your time here today and we really appreciate it you're listening to an m pavilion podcast conversations about design and the world we live in for more visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts